can be seated. So in uh, Acts chapter 9, verse 3, it says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly there was a light from heaven that flashed around him. And he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? We're starting a new series entitled Encounters with Jesus, where we are looking at people in the Bible who have had a life-altering encounter with him. And today we're going to look at a religious zealot named Saul, who found that he was passionately wrong about a lot of things. And his life was disrupted by Jesus himself to the point that it caused him to wake up and see the light. The unique thing about this encounter is that not only did it change his life, but it changed the face of human history forever. I'm telling you, this band is like amped up today for some reason. I don't know who lets that rock and roll music into this place, I'll tell you that. Uh, you know, some uh, little bit of Westridge history since uh, we just celebrated our birthday last year. So Bruce here was our very first guitar player at our first service 19 years ago, which is crazy. Yeah. And I think that I look exactly the same. Uh, it was really cool because uh, Bruce actually um, was a 80s rocker and um, was in a band called Trouble. So literally, you could go on and probably Google it or whatever, but you get on the old MTV videos, and there's Bruce in his leather chaps and the leather rim hat. And <laughs> he was badness. Still is, doggone it. You'll get a little something later. Um, so, have you um, ever wondered how this whole Christianity thing started? Like, how did it take off? Who did it? Well, believe it or not, it was the most unlikely of people who found himself in the most unlikely of circumstances. After Jesus ascended back into heaven, so Jesus is no longer on the scene, okay? His followers were feeling a bit vulnerable and unprotected, and they were scattered all over the country in order to try and escape imprisonment. It seems that the Jewish leaders who were in control at the time felt like Christianity was a threat to their very way of life to the point that they began a campaign against Christianity and began to persecute Christians. Anyone who professed to be a follower of Jesus was in violation of Jewish law and they would be arrested and many times beaten and in some cases, they would be put to death. It was a very, very serious situation. Leading the way against Christians was a guy named Saul, sometimes referred to as Saul of Tarsus. And 
he was destined from the beginning to be a great Jewish leader, to be one of the great leaders of the Jewish faith. And from the very beginning, he was sent by his family into Jerusalem to go to the top Jewish school to be educated under the best teacher in all of Israel named Gamaliel. And so as a student, Saw developed an expert knowledge of the scriptures and over time developed an educational credential that allowed him to speak and teach at any synagogue that he walked into, including the temple itself. The Bible certainly implies that Saul was a very, very brilliant Jewish leader. For whatever reason, Saul's life took a turn. And he became an aggressive opponent against the Christian faith and, in fact, became one of its greatest threats. It seems that nobody hated Christians more than this guy. In fact, he made it his life's mission to put the Christian faith and the name of Jesus to death, even if he had to do it literally. As a Pharisee, Saul hated anything that would disrupt the traditions and the beliefs of the Jewish people. And to him, this new counter-movement that was currently being referred to as the way, which is what Christianity was called in its early days, Christianity, it was just the height of blasphemy against the Jewish faith, and he took issue with it. In fact, Saul had no issue with having any so-called Christians executed whenever he had the chance. Listen to what it says in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, when one of the greatest Christian leaders was named Stephen was stoned to death uh, by the Jewish regime at the time. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, And Saul was there giving approval of their killing him. It was on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house, He dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. That doesn't sound like a very good guy, does it? I mean, believe me when I say that every Christian in Palestine knew the name of Saul, but it wasn't because he was loved or revered. It was because people feared him. They didn't want to become his next victim. So Saul had become this ruthless persecutor of anyone who associated themselves with being a follower of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 9, the story gets interesting because it appears that it wasn't enough for him to just go out and arrest Christians in Jerusalem. He wanted to do more. And so he heard about some of the strongest leaders of the church who fled up to a town north of them called Damascus, and he wanted to actually go and chase them down. 
And so in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out. I mean, you could just feel the anger from the way that it was written. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He hated them. He went to the high priests, and he asked them for letters so that he could go to the synagogues in Damascus that gave him the authority, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, which again is the Christian faith, whether men or women, that he could take them as prisoners back to Jerusalem. I'm telling you, this guy, he was bad news. So Saul and his entourage head 140 miles north on foot to Damascus to go and hunt them down some Christian folk and bring them back and have them put in prison or have them beaten or even killed if necessary for their faith. But on the road to Damascus, as they are on their way, something happens. Everything changes. The passage says that suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, if you're Saul, you're freaking out right now, right? I mean, if this is who he thinks it might be at the other end of that light, he's got to know. He's like toast. It certainly seems like his greatest fear is coming true, And I have to believe that he's thinking to himself, what if I have been wrong all this time? What if this Christianity thing really is true? All this stuff is going through his mind as he replies to the voice that's hidden in this light and says, who are you, Lord? Oh, he knows who that is. So this is his literal come to Jesus moment. That Saul hoped would, he would never, ever have to face. He hoped that it was all just a fairy tale like he'd been telling everybody. But instead, he knows in his heart, he's in trouble. And then his worst fears are confirmed when the voice answers back and says, I am Jesus. Oops. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless as they they heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus, because for three days he was completely blind. He couldn't see a thing. And he did not eat or drink anything. Do you think that God's got his attention now? It's a fascinating story, and I'd encourage you to read the whole thing, but we're going to skip down a few. And as you skip down, you realize that he was living in complete darkness and blindness for a few days. And all of a sudden, God sends this brother, who was a Christian named Ananias, in to go and speak with him. Well, you can imagine, right? He, this Christian, Ananias, is going to walk into this room in front of the guy who's been killing all of his friends or imprisoning him. 
he's putting himself in danger, right? And God is asking him to go in and speak to him and, by the way, heal him. And so as Ananias walks into the room and he places his hands on him, it says, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And when all that happened, immediately he got up and he was baptized. Suffice it to say that Saul had finally let go of all of his baggage that he was holding on to so tightly all of his life. And in this moment, he realizes what the truth is, and he becomes a follower of Jesus. This man, who was a ruthless persecutor and enemy of the Christian faith, changes his entire life in a moment. Everything that he held to be true isn't. And everything that he preached wasn't true is. He was passionate in his opposition to Jesus, but he was passionately wrong. Have you ever been passionately wrong about something? It's hard to admit it when you figure it out, isn't it? The Bible says that he changes everything about his life. And he even takes on a new identity because this, from this point forward, he will be called, wait for it, the Apostle Paul. He even changes his name. And the Apostle Paul, as we know, went on to become one of the most famous of all the apostles. He would go on to write most of the New Testament of the Bible. And it would be Paul who would become one of the greatest leaders of the church who would literally single-handedly expand the Christian faith outside of Israel so that it could go into the rest of the world and the Christian faith could go global. It is not an exaggeration to say that other than Jesus, no one in history has changed the face of the world more than the Apostle Paul. It is also not an exaggeration to say that it really seems that God chooses the worst people to work with. Doesn't it? The story of the conversion of Saul into Paul I think gives us hope that if Jesus can take this ruthless opponent of the Christian faith who lived his life to destroy it and to destroy the name of Jesus and has now become somebody who is so passionately in love with Jesus and passionate about his faith as a Christian, then there is certainly hope for all of us because it means that no one, no one is beyond God's reach. Nobody. What kind of disruption will it take in our life for us to realize the truth about who we really are and the stuff that we're holding on to that just is empty and see the truth about who he really is so that we can have 
life change that is meaningful. I mean, many of us, many of us can go through our entire lives passionately believing things about God and about the Christian faith and about religion that just aren't true. We could have been raised Christian from the beginning and we can have beliefs and ideas as Christians that aren't true. We could hold on to our judgmentalism. We can draw lines in the sand about something that we believe that just isn't true. We can become divisive as Christians, passionately believing things that aren't true. There's also a lot of us who fight the whole Christianity thing Because if you're like me, it's really hard to put all of your faith into something that seems too good to be true. Because what if it's not? Can you really allow yourself to go there in your head and believe? And there's something inside of us that is so skeptical that we just continue to fight it. And then there are those of us who fight the whole Christianity thing because we don't want to give stuff up in our lives that we don't want to give up. There are things that we don't want to do. There are changes that we don't want to make, and so we fight it. And so it's possible, no matter where we at, that we can be passionately wrong about the things that we're holding on to as true in our lives. And the question is, how can we somehow transition our passion from something that has no meaning, that is passionately empty, into something that is real and authentic? I mean, that's really the difference between religion and faith, is when we stop doing things because that's just the way that I've always done them, or that's just the way that I was raised, or that's just what I've always believed, or I'm just too stubborn to make any changes. For Paul, it literally took an act of God for him to change. But somehow, we've got to figure it out because I don't think that God's going to show up and strike us blind anytime soon. So we've got to create our, our own disruption in our life and figure out how it is that we can convince ourselves about the stuff that we are holding on to that is empty, and grab onto the truth instead. When God wants to do something in the world, it seems like he always does it through some messed up person like a Saul, or a you, or a me. God is in the business of taking ordinary people and doing extraordinary things. I think when you look at the life of Paul, you can't help as you reflect on his life but to sit back and ask yourself the tough questions like, where am I off in my own life? What am I holding on to that I shouldn't be? What am I doing with my life? What's my purpose? And what will it take for me to wake up and to grab hold of the truth. I think that when we truly understand the depth of our sin or the extent of the emptiness of our life before God, as Paul did, you can't help but be overwhelmed by what God 
has done for you. And it feels like you can never, ever do enough to say thank you. Listen to what Paul writes. So he's years down the road now, and he's back reflecting on his life. And listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians. He says, you know what? I am the least of the apostles. In fact, I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. I mean, I was the guy who persecuted the church of God. Today, I am who I am because of God's grace. And I have made sure that the grace he offered me has not been wasted on me. I have worked harder and longer than all the rest. It is God's grace within me that has made the difference. Can you see this guy is driven? He is completely driven by his gratitude for what God has done for him, and he's going to make darn sure that the grace that has been extended him is not going to be wasted on him. But he will make a difference in his entire life being driven by just one thing. He just wants to say thank you for what God has done for him. And that's his drive. In fact, the Apostle Paul went on to complete what are known as his three missionary journeys where he traveled around the world, literally to several different countries, where he was shipwrecked, put into prison, beaten, and a couple times left for dead in an attempt to start an estimated 20 churches in strategic locations around the world, which became the foundation for the Christian faith to go global. I mean, if you're God and you want to expand the Christian faith and you need a credible source to do it, who are you going to pick? The guy that was the most opposed to the Christian faith, right? Paul's journey finally ends in Rome where tradition holds that after being imprisoned, he was tortured and then beheaded in Rome by the evil emperor Nero somewhere around 67 AD. And it's amazing when you reflect back on his life how Saul's life played out completely different than he was raised to be. Right? I mean, he was raised to be something very specific, and yet somehow he was able to escape and break the mold of his life to become something completely different. Someone who was passionate about his faith. Somebody who ended up loving Jesus. Paul had finally found the truth, and he realized it was worth dying for. We're all dying for something. As the days slip off the page. What is it for you? Are you dying to achieve success or money or getting ahead? Sometimes we can survive. We can, we can live just to survive the daily grind. And it's not enough. Because none of that stuff has any kind of lasting value. But to leave behind a legacy where we do something that makes a difference in somebody else's life. To figure out a way where we can make a difference in the world. 
where we can grab a hold of what's true and what's real and what's authentic. We may fail at times doing some of the things that we think that we need to be doing, but at least we fail trying, trying to move forward. You have dreams that seem impossible. I'd encourage you just to dream bigger and know that God can take an ordinary, messed up person like you and me and do extraordinary things, things that are worth dying for. All of us are much more capable of going deeper in our faith. We think we're at capacity and we're not. All of us are much more capable of living more authentically, being more committed to Jesus, living our way, living our lives in a way that is seamlessly walking in the path of Jesus down the narrow road. All of us are way more capable of doing extraordinary things if we will just take the hand of Jesus and allow him to lead us into a whole new way of life. Because the wake-up call, the wake-up call of our life is when all of a sudden, I get it. There's some disruption, and all of a sudden, I wake up, and I understand, and I know who it is that I've been created to be. And I have great clarity about what it is that I'm living for. And all of a sudden, there is this clear path in front of me, and I am driven until the very end by gratitude. I am driven every day to live my life in such a way that says thank you to God for the grace that he's extended me and I will make darn sure that that grace is not wasted on me. We may never have a a blinding encounter with Jesus as Saul did, but there will come a, a moment in your life when you know that no one, no one is beyond God's reach. Not even you.